You're listening to the sermon audio from Covenant Church at Tuscaloosa. Our prayers that this encourages you in the Lord. Well, good evening. good evening. Man, it is so good to see you guys. Glad that you're with us this evening at Covenant Church. And so this is the last midweek gathering um, that we will have for this, what I like to think of as a session. And so, man, I pray that the last couple of weeks have been a blessing to you and your family. I know that they have been to mine as well. And so, man, it's just something sweet about coming together, eating together, coming in here and worshiping, and so it's such a good time. And so tonight, um, we will be talking through the truth that is God is gracious, and then outside of that, so we do not have to prove ourselves. And so, you know, that's something, man, that we can all relate to, so we don't have to prove ourselves. And so over the past couple of weeks, we've talked through several of the G's, as we call them. God is great, so we don't have to be in control. Um, you know, that's another one. I mean, it hits to the heart, right? We don't have to be in control. Like, when you hear that, you're like, golly, right? Like, because we are control freaks, and it's written into our DNA. It's who we are. God is glorious. We learned a couple of weeks ago as Daniel talked through that. So we don't have to fear others or have other fears. All right. And then last week, Brad taught God is good. So we don't have to look elsewhere. And so this God is gracious. You know, it's something that, man, I feel like, as Hank said, like we can all kind of relate to. And here's how tonight's going to go. I'm going to start by the definition of, of grace, and we'll kind of roll through that. And then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask some questions, really some, some, some pointed questions. And it's really just designed for you to do just really just some, some, some heart surgery, so to speak, on yourself. All right, And then we're going to dive into Luke 15 and look at the prodigal son. And then we'll have some practical takeaways. All right. And so, you know, the, the book that we talked through just for the past couple of weeks, it's Tim Chester's You Can Change. Uh, man, it's a great book. I would, you know, it's something that, that we've all read as an elder team. And so that's kind of where we got these four G's, all right, that we've spoken on for the past couple of weeks. All right. So let me ask you this. So what is grace? All right. So when I say that, like, man, it's so deep. I mean, it really is. You know, your mind may go to uh, several different things that may go to uh, unmerited favor, you know, maybe go to getting what we don't deserve, right? I mean, and, and so, you know, for me, I mean, food is a grace, right? I mean, we can, we can relate to that. Um, I love sports, man, that's a grace. Um, you know, getting to see, I mean, here's a shameless plug, but getting to see the ACA boys basketball team win the other night and go to the championship on Friday, man, that is a grace. And so, we experience a lot of these graces um, in our lives, and, and, and it's, it's such uh, an unbelievable opportunity that we get to do so. But here is the definition of grace that I found by Elder D.J. Ward, and this is just kind of a working definition that I will use, and it's this. It's God's unmerited favor, but check this out, bestowed upon undeserving people. And so listen to that, undeserving people. And so we just sang the song Amazing Grace. That saved a what? A wretch like me. And so do we see ourselves as a wretch? 
that we see ourselves as undeserving because the grace truly can only be amazing if we start there. And so sin is so offensive to God. It's so offensive to God that literally He has the right, all right, He has the right to kill the people that sin against Him, that betray Him, right? Like it would be just, but He loves them all the same. And it's such good news. It doesn't make sense, it's counterintuitive. But that grace is amazing. So I want to ask you a couple of questions. We've kind of defined grace here. I want to ask you some questions just before we jump into the prodigal son. In terms of, with the backdrop of grace, in terms of, so we don't have to prove ourselves, right? How do you feel when you're right about something? Like a boss. Yes, absolutely. And so, no, that's, that's right. That's, that's perfect. So, when we're right about something, we have this boss mentality because we're right. And we turn situations and we, we shift them so that we make it about us. All right? Now, how do you feel when others are proven wrong? Not that you necessarily proved them wrong, Right? Because you're right, right? We're sitting here as a boss, right? So then all of a sudden, when somebody else is proven wrong, how does that make you feel? Are you prideful around that? Are you humble around that? Now, the third and most pointed question, how do you feel when you are wrong? And so for me, I mean, honestly, just full transparency, you know me. Most of you, I mean, I'm a positive person, right? I am. And so I don't know. It's how the Lord designed me. But here's the deal. <laughs> I, I do not like, I despise being told. What? What is it, Casey? What is it? Huh? I told you so, right? And so it's a very frustrating thing to hear. I don't know why, right? I just, I don't know. But it's like, it just, it's literally like nails on a chalkboard. It's like very frustrating for me. But... If we think about how we feel when we're wrong, like do we, do we take criticism? How does that make us feel? I'm not the best at that, and it's weird. Because you think me being a positive person, I would be. But it's so weird to think how God has designed us all uniquely, gifted us all. And so under His sovereign care, He's allowed us to function and operate differently when we're right and when we are wrong. And so, with that in mind, we're going to dive to Luke 15. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Luke 15, we're going to start, we're going to start in verse 11. And we're going to kind of break it into pieces and parts, and we're going to roll through that and go to verse 32. But this is the parable of the prodigal son. And so what is, a, what is a, a prodigal? The definition of a prodigal is, is wastefully or recklessly extravagant all right so wastefully or recklessly extravagant so let's start in verse 11 and we'll read 
through verse 16. And I'll kind of break this up as it is on the screen so that we can have some talking points behind it. Here we go. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. Verse 12. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. All right, so we see in verse 13, not many days later. So this younger son, he approaches his dad. He's like, hey man, look, can I have my inheritance, essentially, right? And oddly enough, notice this in, in verse 12, and we'll talk more about this later. And he, the father, divided his property between them. And so he actually divided it to the to the both brothers, right? Because we know there's a younger brother, we know there's an older brother. So he divided the property, all right? Not many days later, so we see the younger son, driven by and blinded by passion, takes his inheritance and goes and squanders it. The definition of squander is to waste, to dissipate, to disperse. And you know, oddly enough, that word here used in the Greek is also the same word that Jesus talks when he is talking about scattering sheep. And so what's fascinating about this is that many of you know the story, the younger son squanders his property, scatters himself essentially as if he, he is a sheep, but guess what? We're never, he was never outside of God's sovereign care, even though he was scattered. That is such good news. So we see squandered in verse 13, his property in reckless living. Verse 14, we see the scene change a little bit. When he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. And so, I mean, despite this, the Jewish culture and pigs were dirty, like that whole thing, like he had literally hit rock bottom and willing to do anything just to eat, just to be fed. And what was the people's response around him? I mean, in verse, like they showed no pity. They literally showed no pity. They didn't necessarily throw him a bone. I mean, he was literally, for several days, no pun intended, living high on the hog, right? And so, where did it put him? Where did it place him? What had happened at this point? We see another huge shift in verse 17. But when, this is such good news, church, listen to this. But when he came to himself. So if you can imagine just this just filth. I mean, he had he had hit rock bottom, he had he had he had despair, he had shame, he had guilt. But the good news through all of that is that God drew repentance through rebellion, through squandering, and through hunger. And he does that for us. Like he draws us to repentance through our real 
life decisions that we make under God's sovereign care that's a mystery in and of itself. And what does it do? It births obedience. I mean, you can feel the whole scene shift here because all of a sudden it's like scales falling from his eyes. It's almost as if it's a Paul-like moment. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise, go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. And so we can, we can feel this repentance. We can begin to see this obedience because he acknowledges the fact and he's really prepping his conversation that he's going to have with his dad. But we could, he, he acknowledged the fact that he had sinned not only against an earthly human, right? But he had sinned against heaven. It's a hardship, anguish, like torment, like things that we go through in this life, they all graciously invite us to repentance in the same way. Luther calls this a profitable invitation to repentance. Because we need extreme measures. I mean, we talked about this. We talked about when we're right, we do like to think we're a boss, right? Like we, we have to have extreme measures to be able to get our attention to understand who Jesus is and who we are. In light of what he's done, what he's doing, and what he will do. So we see in verse 18 and 19, he understood his condition. Like he genuinely understood that he was a wretch. He genuinely understood that he was undeserving. Outside of that, with the foundational element of understanding his depravity, outside of that, he began to flow to want genuine reconciliation. So that's, man, that's huge. Absolutely huge because, I'll talk more about this in a minute, but these types of relationships are challenging when people wrong us. To be fair, there has to be repentance. We have to, if we're right, especially if we're right, we have to acknowledge our heart and our motives and understand our foundational element is we're depraved <laughs> and start there. To be able to seek reconciliation. So, verse 19. Again, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hard servants. And he is, he's rehearsing this, right? And so we see verse 20. And he arose and came to his father. Listen to this. But while he was still a long way off. You know, it is our nature to want revenge, right? I mean, it is our nature when something happens and somebody wrongs us. Like it, It's in our nature to like want revenge or want to see something happen, want justice, want to see whatever the case may be. Man, the father is standing there. The son is a long way off. And what happened? His father saw him. And what did he do, church? He felt compassion. And he ran to him and embraced him and kissed him. That is the gospel. It's counterintuitive. It's countercultural. 
you know, <laughs> us as earthly fathers, we have stubborn hearts, man. And we see the sun coming, it would, it would be lucky for us to take a couple of steps because we've been thinking about what he did, his decisions he made, etc. The father ran to him, embraced him. God's grace, it changes our hearts. It changes our motives. Only the true grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ can do that. Because outside of that, we're going to have an earthly response, which is, you come to me and you apologize to me. Now, Verse 21, the son said to him, just as he rehearsed, Father, I have sinned against heaven. Starts there, right? <laughs> and before you, I am no longer, he understood his position, he was communicating that clearly, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. We see a displeasure of sin. We see the conviction of shame and grief. And then as we jump to verse 22, I mean, literally the father was like not even listening. Because what was his response? But the father said to the servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, listen to this, My son was dead and is alive. He was lost and he is found. And they began to celebrate. I mean, it's, it's, it's counterintuitive, it's countercultural. That is the gospel. Forgiveness, restoration, and celebration of the very things that he had just left, right? And his motives were as pure as they could be in a sinful human's flesh. However, because the Holy Spirit had taken over and allowed him to see his response was different. And so now, a stark contrast as we look at the next section, we see the older son's reaction. In verse 25. We see now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. You know, he was out there getting after it. And he's like, what is going on? And he called one of the servants. He's like, I mean, what about these things? Here's what he said. The servant said this. Your brother's come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. So there's some things that are implied here, but I just want to ask you this question. Like, Do we envy God's grace shown to others? You know, we see the older son, like, man, there's just this internal fire. You can just feel it. There's a lot of internal things going on. We're about to get to the external because he'll actually talk. But you can just, you can feel the internal because he's been out there working. He's received half or received his portion, right? And yet in his mind, you know, the judge, judgment has begun. I can't believe he's back. He spent his. I hadn't spent mine. Why are we doing this? Why are we doing that? The measuring begins, right? I mean, 
Kaysen is 11 and Griffin is 8. And the man, it's just like they aggravate each other all the time, you know? And it's very frustrating. And it's very hard for me <laughs> to be like stable in the middle and, and fixed and not be frustrated, but it happens. But, that, but that's real life. There's always judgment. There's always a measuring stick. There's always something because we are sinners. Now, I want to ask you this. Do we genuinely forgive? Because we're setting the tone. Do we genuinely forgive in which the same way that we have been forgiven? Because it's tough. I mean, it's tough. The older son's sitting here again just stewing. I mean, his response to this grace, it's scandalous, right? But his response to this grace is one that it would be, it would be hard not to have that if God hasn't opened our eyes to this grace once before. But he was angry. He refused to go in. So his father came out and entreated him. That means beg, implore. And he answered his father. Here we go. Look, these many years I have served you. We're talking about seeking approval right here, right? Specifically seeking approval, right? God is gracious, so we don't have to have approval, right? Like we don't, the approval doesn't matter. Christ has approved us. Listen to this. Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. You never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this, not his brother, but when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. You know, a lot of times we tend to develop these presumptions on people based on the external, how they look, right? How people act in public, how people function in public, how their kids act. When we develop these presumptions based on what we see, we look at life as if, okay, here's the thing. If we do good, God is going to favor us. If we do wrong, then God is going to be upset, and then we feel the shame and guilt because we're sinners and we keep doing wrong, and then all of a sudden we can't please God and we're left in this, it just in shambles. And the older son was just trying to process this, trying to figure this out. Like, I can't get my head wrapped around this. If God has revealed to you the true grace, then there's no need for you to be on that infinite hamster wheel of frustration, of guilt. I mean, because here's the thing. We are going to sin because it's who we are. But the good news is, is that Christ's blood has covered it. Therefore, we'll never take advantage of it because we understand how good of news that is. We understand how scandalous the grace is. We would never want to begin to take advantage of it as if Paul says, shall we sin so that grace may abound? By no means. So the older son is given his laundry list of, of what he has done, painting the picture to his dad. So here's the dad's response in 31 and 32. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead 
and is alive. He was lost and is found. You know, a lot of times in Scripture when we see repetition, it's vitally important to understand the theme, to understand what's going on. It's the second time we've seen that here. And the father, I can almost envision him just weeping. Because it's not even about the party. It's not even about the circumstances that's what's going on right here. It's about the eternal significance of his son that was dead and is now dadgum alive. And that, that is huge. That is what should push us. That is what should empower our motives the day to day as we function in this life. As we go to the gas station. As we go to Winn-Dixie. As we go to Dollar General, as we get in carpool lines that are frustrating, right? As we go through these things, our motives should be powered by the grace in which we have been given that we understand is eternal. So it's fitting to celebrate. It's fitting to celebrate and not be offended because we see this transition of one brother being dead and now he is alive. So now just to kind of give some practical takeaways, just um, some really practical implications um, as we tie in uh, the, the entire uh, intro, I guess you would say, about you know, we don't have to prove ourselves, God is gracious, and also the parable. Um, you know, Christ validates us. He stamps an approval based on His forgiveness based on His love. Verses, verses a stamp, all right, of entitlement, right? Because the older brother, he was the older, and so he had a sense of entitlement just because of the way Jewish culture functioned. And so it's easy for us to develop a sense of entitlement, to have expectations, to set the bar, and if we don't meet it, what is the repercussions of that versus a stamp of deserve versus a stamp of proven I mean it's not about what we do but it's genuinely about what Christ has done and so our response to Christ's approval because it should take the pressure off that we don't have to prove ourselves when we see that Christ's, Christ has approved us we should rest and I don't mean like rest, like, oh man, we got it made. You know what I'm saying? Like, we, you know. And then I don't mean like the older brother out there in the field getting after it with the same motives that he had, right? And so there's a balance of getting after it with gospel-centered motives because we're going to have to, we're going to have to function in life and work, right? I mean, there's practical things that we have to do, but so it, it really is a performance-driven world and how you function as a Christian inside of that is very challenging. Because our grace and our salvation is not based on performance. However, we live in a performance-driven world where we work and get paid. All right, We tell our kids, study, do good in school, right? But if the foundational element of that is understanding who Jesus is what he's done, being able to truly rest, take the pressure off through word, genuinely diving into scripture through prayer we have on Wednesday nights, through gospel community. 
We have community groups that meet throughout the week. We gather here on Sundays. I mean, you guys have felt this. Like, God has graced us, all right, with this facility for about a year now. And you guys have seen momentum pick up in things we've done that we've never been able to do. And man, without God's grace and His sovereign care, we, we wouldn't be able to do that. Us as elders, like, we, and I'm telling you, this is a grace. We have not had to sit down and be like, oh man, what's our next step going to be? Because God has absolutely pulled us exactly where He's needed us. And so we can rest through word, through prayer, through gospel community. So I want to go to Romans 4, 4 through 5, and, and just kind of look at that real quickly with you and kind of plays into what the older son was saying. But it says this, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due, along the same theme of the performance-driven world. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Rest. So, point number one, rest in God's grace through word, prayer, and gospel community. Number two, we can rest in the finished work of Christ. I mean, I know that, and I don't say that flippantly, right? Because it's easy to say, all right? And it's, it's a whole lot harder to believe and then let your actions flow out of that. But, going to 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10, and Hank, I'm glad you read that as we set up our time, because, man, this, you know Paul. I mean, we've, we're going through Acts here, right? We've seen his journey. We've seen things are challenging for him. In the next couple of weeks, things are going to get on a whole other level, all right? Because there's, I mean, shipwreck, snake bite. I mean, it's crazy. And so listen, listen to this. But he said to me, listen, this is Christ. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Tell me where else that applies in your life, man. Jeez. My grace is sufficient for you. This grace in which we talked about tonight, it's sufficient. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, therefore, what's our response out of that? I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Listen to verse 10. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with my weaknesses. Content with weaknesses. Content with insults. Content with hardships. Content with persecutions. Content with calamities. Only by the Holy Spirit, only by true grace can we be content in our circumstances. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And I'm telling you this, church, it takes all of us together. All right, It takes genuine gospel community because we're all going to be weak at different times. We're going to be strong at different times. And it takes all of us pulling together to be able to display the strength that Paul is referring to here. This type of rest, specifically in the finished work of Christ, this type of rest, it absolutely creates 
contentment in our circumstances. Independent of what you're going through, independent of what you have gone through, independent of what you will go through. You can be content. It's just Paul talks about here. You can be strong. Not because of us, but because the person and work of Christ. So finally, number three. We are called. You can rest in this. We are called into a covenant, not a contract. And so a contract begins and ends. You do things. You start. You finish. But a covenant. A covenant that's been fulfilled outside of us. It's been fulfilled for us. It's eternal. That's good news, man. I mean, the covenant of Christ for His people is eternal. And so I want to I challenge you. Because it is a challenge to be focused on the eternal. Not focused necessarily on the transit, on the here and now. Focus on the eternal. Rejoice in the fact that Christ has offered you His grace and His mercy and His Holy Spirit. You know, one thing that stuck out to me as I was just going through this Luke 15 is that, man, both brothers, they had grace all along. One didn't realize it. God removed the scales from his eyes. He had grace all along. He was where he ended up, right? Without going through all of this craziness. But that was God's design. God's grace, thankfully, it never, never runs out. Somebody pray for us. We'd like to thank you for listening to the sermon audio from Covenant Church at Tuscaloosa. If you have any questions or would like to know more about our church, you can visit our website at www.covchurchtusk.com or you can email info at covchurchtusk.com. God bless.